morning, everyone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Mary. Um, I'm one of the members here, and I will be um, reading for us today from Psalm 14 to the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous." You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray together uh, now as we look to God's word. Father, we want to quiet our hearts before you now and prepare to hear what can only be described as a particularly weighty message from Psalm 14. You you have not pulled any punches here. You have spoken with incredible clarity and incredible truthfulness about the true spiritual state of us as human beings apart from your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, with all the, the many temptations to avoid or to redefine or to change these truths in order to make Christianity appear more positive, God, we pray that you would meet us in that tension that all of us, I think, inevitably feel. When it's difficult to look at, the, at a hard spiritual truth, we pray, God, for your grace and mercy to soften our hearts to truly look at what you've said, to allow it to change us, to shape us, God, and ultimately to allow us and to compel us even to cling to the hope of the gospel, our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, sin can be a fairly uncomfortable topic for many people to discuss and talk about. Uh, For example, it's never particularly easy to address someone else's sin when we see it. Uh, When you do that, you always risk um, making them angry and causing all kinds of tension. Uh, It's even harder, frankly, to talk about our sin when other people see it. Uh, We always have to fight this temptation to justify and to defend ourselves. But even just in general, if we talk too much about sin, we can almost have this impression that we're going to get a little too cynical. We're going to become a real downer if we do that, right? Sin is just, it's, it's not a fun topic. Uh, no one, I don't think, really enjoys it. Uh, unfortunately, many modern people have virtually erased it from their worldview and vocabulary. But sin is, without a doubt, one of the most important doctrines for us to make sense of. If we do not have a clear biblical understanding of sin and and even the extent of its corrupting effects, uh, worse, if we avoid thinking seriously about sin because it's just a little too uncomfortable for us, we will have no hope of living a healthy Christian life. 
no hope of understanding and making sense of the gospel, and really no hope of, of either knowing or worshiping the God of the Bible. We desperately need a clear understanding of sin, and that is exactly what this psalm is meant to give us. In this psalm, King David is lamenting all the devastating effects of foolishness and sin, and he makes some very bold claims about the extent of human sin. But in the end, ironically, I think we're going to see in all of this, this psalm is really meant in a strange way to encourage us, particularly as we struggle and we wrestle through a difficult and challenging life in a fallen and sinful world. And so let's, let's do this. Let's hear David out first in Psalm 14, and then we will consider uh, what kind of response I think God is looking for from us in Psalm 14. So first, Bible's open. If you've got a Bible, open her up, turn to Psalm 14. Let's take a look there. You'll notice the psalm begins with this really unique statement, and in some ways it almost seems as that this statement would be more fitting for the book of Proverbs. It says in verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That one little, very profound statement is like a banner that flies over the entirety of this psalm. Every other point that the psalmist is about to make will be downstream of this one point. The fool, the wicked person says in his heart, there is no God. Now, just a few things to point out here. First, there are uh, quite a few different names for God in the Old Testament, and each of them has a slightly different and unique meaning to it. In this case, the name that is used is Elohim. And the name Elohim refers to God as the creator, as the ruler, and here's the key, as the moral authority over all of creation. When you hear Elohim, you should think of God as a holy judge. With this in mind, I think we're meant to assume something here about this fool's moral motivations for what he's saying in his heart. Uh, it's not just that he's thought through the mysteries of life and he seems unconvinced by the evidence that there is a real creator God who exists. That may be part of it, but it is also that he's considered this idea of a holy God who is judge over all people whom he and all others are accountable. And in response to this notion of God, this fool says, nah, I just don't buy it. In other words, not only is there no God, but because there is no God, this fool has no judge. No one can keep him accountable for the way he lives his life. This is not just a spiritually skeptical person, in other words. It's also a spiritually proud and haughty person. But here's one of the most important details for us to pick up on in order to interpret this psalm well I want you to notice it's not just that the fool says there is no God to keep him accountable. It's that he says this in his heart. It's what he really believes. To be honest, what people actually say is not particularly important in the mind of the psalmist here. In this psalm, uh, we're considering the substance of a person's heart, their inner spiritual life, what we believe, what we feel about God and about ourselves in the innermost recesses of who we 
are. This is critical for us to understand here in verse 1, because if we don't, there is a real trap we can fall into in the way we interpret this psalm. We can easily read this as though the psalmist cannot relate to or identify with these fools whatsoever, as if he sees himself, the psalmist, in a totally different class of humans. And in a sense, we kind of have to wrestle with this because there are certainly two groups of people he has in mind here. You can't deny that. Look with me at verse 4. He says, Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread? Later, he says that God is with the generations of the righteous, that he is the refuge of the poor. And so again, in one sense, David does have two groups of people in mind here. Uh, He is talking about fools who are not his people in some sense, which may include, for instance, enemy nations of Israel. Uh, And then he's talking about the generations of the righteous who presumably are his people, the ones being eaten like bread, probably citizens of Israel. But there is a way of reading this psalm nationalistically, as if no one in the nation of Israel was one of these God-rejecting fools, and everyone of every other nation somehow was. And if we apply this psalm in that way today, we'd probably spend most of our time talking about all the God-hating secular pagans out there in the world who pose an eminent threat to the church. And certainly while this passage does help us make sense of the sin that we do see in the world and in the culture around us, if we were to do that, if we were to focus very little on our sin because we're the church, we're the generations of the righteous, I think we would have almost entirely missed the point of this psalm. There are a few clues that seem to indicate this is, this is not what David had in mind. The first is, again, the idea that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. This leaves very much open the real possibility that, that David was talking about people within Israel who would have insisted with their mouths that, oh, they knew and worshiped this God, but there was a very different reality taking place in their hearts. This passage is not just about who is in the right God club and who is not in the God club. It's about the content of human hearts in relation to God. Okay? But even more convincingly, When the psalmist starts to describe the lives of these fools, listen, he says, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, and then listen carefully, there is none who does good. None. (laughs) I mean, that should really get our attention, right? Even if he is just talking about the entire Gentile world, that seems like a pretty far-reaching claim. Is there really none? Is the entire... Gentile world, every member of it, a fool who's rejected God in their hearts. But then as we continue on into verse two, we see very quickly, oh, no, no, that's, that's not what he meant at all. Everyone, <laughs> including every member of every tribe in Israel is a fool in this very same way. And that is not just according to David either. Look with me at verse two. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And church, here here is the Lord's assessment of the situation. As God looks down from heaven, presumably on all of the earth, 
as he considers the spiritual state of the children of men, which presumably includes the entire human race, here is the conclusion he has come to. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. And church, this next sentence, I'm convinced, it's the claim of the entire passage, and it's the claim of our sermon this morning. There is none who does good. Not even one. Midway through this psalm, it is as if a boulder is placed on our chest. And as soon as we read these words, we're just left to sit with this. We are left to wrestle with what this really means. God is looking throughout all of creation to see if anyone understands and seeks after him. His conclusion is, nope. No, not even a single person. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, I want to ask you this morning, how does that sit with you? When you hear that, how does that sit with you? Are you tempted to disagree with the psalmist, to kind of correct him? Hold on a second. Are you tempted at least to qualify what he must really mean? Well, maybe of all the the wicked, foolish people out there, right? There are none who do good and none who seek after God, right? But not everyone. My goodness, I've been going to church my whole life. There are some great people here, right? I I mean, even me. I may not be perfect, sure. But listen, I'm I'm not corrupt and abominable. Well, that may have been what many Israelites thought when reading this psalm for many, many years. Basically, there are two groups of people, the foolish and the wicked people, and then God's people, and praise God, I'm, I'm part of the latter and not the former. But then centuries later, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Rome to settle this debate once and for all. The, the church in Rome at the time was in a really unique position. It was a church that was made up of both Jews and Gentiles, but in the historical context, The Jews in this church had actually been cast out of of Rome for five years, and they were just recently allowed back into Rome. And so you can imagine this created a lot of turmoil in the church. The Gentiles had been in charge for five years, and then here come these Jews with all this history from the Old Testament rolling back into the church, and it created a lot of turmoil in that church. And and, and basically, they were wrestling to figure out which one of us is the real in-group here. And so Paul begins the letter to the Romans by describing the abject wickedness of the Gentile world in chapter 1. And here's what he has to say about it. This is, again, speaking of the Gentiles. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, he says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, at this point in the letter, as it's being read aloud in the church at Rome, you might imagine the Jews giving a hearty amen with the reader of the letter there at the end. Amen. You might imagine them sitting back with a satisfied grin, looking around the church, saying, I I told you, I told you guys, you guys have always been the problem. We are the solution to the problem. But then in chapter 2, Paul really turns the tables. 
And he writes this. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and, and truth. You can, just, you can hear his sarcasm, right? You think all these great things about yourself, he's saying, He's saying to the Jews, you guys, if you guys think you are God's solution to the problem of sin because you were born with Jewish lineage. You, you, think you're in a, you think you're in a different class of human and the rest of the world should what? Just learn from you. And then he continues in chapter, or verse 21. He says, you then who teach others, do, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What's going on there? You who boast in the law, he says, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written of the covenant people of God, the Jews, he says the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So clearly, according to Paul, it is not the case that God's earthly covenant people were somehow less sinful than the rest of the Gentile world. And to drive this point home even more, listen to where Paul takes his argument next in chapter 3. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, he says. Why? For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, and then listen, he paraphrases basically a collection of teachings from Scripture, mostly from the Psalms. And listen very carefully. I think you'll recognize some of his opening lines here. He says, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Have you heard this? All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, he says, not even one. Paul is speaking right into this tension and pulling at least half of this from our passage today in Psalm 14. He's basically saying, listen, church, no. God's law-abiding people are not the solution to the problem of sin. None of us deserve to be in this heavenly family based on our ethnic background or our obedience to God's law. None of us are righteous because of the spiritual quality of our own earthly lives. And then here's how he settles this debate once and for all. Praise God. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Let's talk about that. He's saying this, this righteousness that he's talking about here, basically, is, is not just a righteousness of men. It's not just the thing that comes as a result of humans obeying the law. It's a totally different kind of righteousness. And yet, his point is, it's, it's also not some totally new plan. This isn't like a hitting reset on the story of the Old Testament. The law and the prophets, which make up the Old Testament, points us to this new and different kind of of righteousness. It's kind of the point of the whole thing. And here's how Paul describes this different kind of righteousness. He calls it, quote, the righteousness 
of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, he says, listen carefully, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So listen, back to Psalm 14. The difference between the fool and the generations of the righteous in Psalm 14 is not that one has rejected God and the other has not. That is not the difference. The difference between them is not that one is corrupt and abominable and the other is neither corrupt nor abominable. That is not the difference. In and of themselves, they are both fools who have rejected God in their heart. In and of themselves, they are both corrupt and abominable. Both have turned aside. The only difference between these two groups is that one of them calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation and the other does not. One of them takes refuge in the God of Israel even when their life is, is drowning in destitute poverty. They run to him. The other mocks those who take refuge in God because they don't think they need a transcendent God to take refuge in. You see this? It is very tempting, both in this psalm and in our lives, to assume that the most important thing about us is how we live and therefore the groups that we're entitled to be a part of and to be members of, when in fact the point of this psalm is that the most important thing about all of us is this. It is our heart posture toward this God. Here's the key. We will never have a humble heart posture toward this God unless we come to grips with the claim of Psalm 14, that there is none who does good, not even one. Yes, that applies to the entirety of the human race, and yes, of course, that includes us. It includes me. It includes you. And if, you know, we just kind of don't really buy this, if we sort of eh, roll our eyes and move on here, then the truth is we are really no different than the fool who says in his heart, there is no Elohim. Now, that's a heavy load I just put on your shoulders. Uh, I realize that. I think in many ways that's what Psalm 14 is in, intended to be and how it's meant to feel. But with that in mind, let's just consider next, according to this psalm, how does God want us to respond to all of this? What are we supposed to do with this terrible news about our utterly sinful condition? The first thing is this. Let's take an honest look at our hearts before God. That's what I want to try and lead us in doing even now. It's really easy for us to take an honest look at any number of things other than our hearts, right? It's much easier to take an honest look at someone else's heart and try and figure out what's going on there and make sense of that situation. Uh, we love to take an honest look at all the external evidences. Look at all the stuff that I do and I say in my life that gives the impression of spiritual health. Uh, we take an honest look at the church at large and point out all of its problems, even our church in particular, all the ways it could improve and the disappointments we have. We love to take those honest looks. 
Church, these are not the kinds of honest looks this psalm is encouraging us to take. If anything, we have to try and cut through everything that people think about us. Let's try to cut through the religious things we say and we do on the outside. Let's cut through the motivations we like to tell people we have. And let's take an honest look at our heart before this God this morning. What is the posture of your heart, the most internal secret thoughts that you have toward this God? That right there is is one of the most important questions we could ever ask ourselves to consider our true spiritual condition. Uh, The great reformer John Calvin put it this way. He says, there is no stupidity more brutish than forgetfulness of God. That sounds about right. So does it matter to you what this God thinks about you and your life? Does that really matter to you? Do you often find yourself even considering his thoughts about you and your life? Do you, in your heart, make regular, earnest attempts to commune with this God, to be cleansed, to be forgiven by him? Church, the true measure of spiritual health and maturity is not the religious stuff we do. It is not the doctrines we can defend or explain. It is not even whether people respect us and look to us for spiritual guidance. That is not it at all. The true measure of spiritual health and maturity is this. Does my heart bow before this God? Does my heart joyfully submit to his every word? Do I approach him in humility, knowing that he has every right to condemn me to an eternity in hell? Or do I approach him like a smug little earthling who thinks he deserves the joys of heaven? And we are meant to observe one another's lives, uh, to help one another where this may not be the case, to kind of encourage one another to walk with this kind of humility before God. But I have to tell you, no one in this church can answer these questions for you. No one. This really is between you and your God. It is a matter of the heart. As biblical scholar William Plummer wrote back in the 1800s, reflecting on this very psalm, he says this, Words are cheap, but what a man says in his heart shows whether he is a wise man or a fool, a saint or a sinner. The seat of all goodness and all wickedness is in, in man is his heart. And so if the curtain were to be pulled back on your life, if everyone were to see the true spiritual condition of your life, would they see a humble, God-fearing person who calls upon the name of the Lord and takes refuge in him? Is that what they would see? Or would they see a proud, haughty person who despises God's authority over them, who resists and fights against it at every turn? When we read this passage and we see God's assessment of our spiritual state, It really is as if we're all sort of thrust into the ultimate fight or flight experience, isn't it? We really have to decide, will we receive this? Uh, Will will we own our spiritual condition? Will we kind of come to an end of ourselves and call upon the Lord? 
Or are we going to kind of roll our eyes, explain all of this away, and go on living as fools? And of course, God would have us do the former rather than the latter, which is our next step in our response. Number two, let's come to grips with God's spiritual diagnosis of us. Let's, let's receive this. See, it's one thing to take an honest look at the spiritual content of our hearts that is so important. It is another thing entirely to accept what we see when we take that honest look at our hearts. Sometimes I, I worry that far too often, again, we assume that if we focus on sin too much, you know, I don't know, we might just be come down and defeated. We'll, we'll become really somber religious people with no joy whatsoever. And, and that may be a danger, certainly. Uh, truthfully, uh, if it weren't for Christ and the saving power of the gospel, it, that may be appropriate. There may be something appropriate about that. But I wonder if this sin-avoiding instinct we have has led us in some cases to basically edit and revise the Christian faith and message as if we can kind of just nix that whole part about our total and utter depravity and still be left with the same religion at the end. You have to admit, it, it is fairly uncommon to hear Christians speaking as clearly as Psalm 14 on the issue of sin. I want you to imagine them reading this psalm on, on positive, encouraging Caleb. Um, on, on your way into work tomorrow. Here's your morning encouragement today, listeners, from Psalm 14. <laughs> the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. He's looking for you, isn't he? I bet he is. All you seekers out there, he's looking for you. They have, uh, sorry, they have, they have all turned aside uh, together they've become corrupt. There, there is none who does good, not even one. I'm, I must, I'm, it must have been a typo. I'm sorry, it must have been Psalm 41. My mistake. Let's turn to Psalm 41. Point is this, church. If we don't come to grips with what this psalm clearly teaches, if we do not let a biblical understanding of sin sink deep down into the foundation of our, our life and even our worldview, if we even try to live together with one another in peace and love as if we're not all hopelessly sinful apart from Christ, we will be constantly disappointed and even devastated both by one another and by our own patterns of sin. We will have no way of grasping or making sense of the abject evil that we do see in the world. And in turn, it will actually lead us to become more down and more depressed than if we had just faced God's spiritual diagnosis of our sin in this psalm to begin with. It may seem counterintuitive, but the greatest kind of heavenly joy is on the other end of this spiritual diagnosis. It may seem counterintuitive, but if we want any hope of living a spiritually peace-filled life of joy that is not just corrupted by chaos and sin in this fallen world, we must embrace this truth in a deep and personal way that there is none who does good, not even one. Now, I do want to address a potential objection, which I think is relatable. Just some of you might even be thinking, Danny, I just have to say, this just doesn't actually gel with my experience of life. I've actually experienced some really great things in my life. And I would say I understand that. I think that's right. And praise God for his grace 
to bless us in these ways. I think when we do experience that, we should count it a blessing in this way. One way I've heard it said in the past, I don't remember where, but this is not my idea, is basically that if, if sin were to be the color red, what the Bible teaches about sin is that basically everything in our world would be some shade of the color red. Everything would be tainted to some extent. Even the greatest things have a, have a subtle tinge of sin, selfishness, self-absorption, any number of things about it. The point is this. We may think we are pure and innocent, but God says right here we're corrupt. We may think we do nothing but good, but he says our deeds are abominable. We may think we understand, we seek after him, but he knows the truth. That in and of ourselves, in the deepest recesses of our hearts, all of us have said, there is no God. I'll live how I want to live. Again, the reformer John Calvin puts it this way in his commentary on Psalm 14. He says, all of us, when we are born, bring with us from our mother's womb this folly and filthiness manifested in the whole life, which David here describes, and we continue such, he says, until God makes us new creatures by his mysterious grace. It's a little bit of a side, but I want to talk to parents, actually, for a bit. Parents, as we disciple our kids, our aim should not be to simply teach them the stories that are in the Bible, help them understand the importance of regular church attendance. No, we need to help them take this kind of honest look at their own hearts. We need to help them come to grips with God's spiritual diagnosis of their sin. And finally, this both for parents and really for every member for, for in all of our lives, number three, let's call upon the name of his son for salvation. Now, ironically, as dark and depressing as this psalm mostly feels, <laughs> I think the author's aim is actually, in writing it, to encourage us. Now, you might be thinking, okay, um, that's kind of, this is kind of a strange way to do that. Uh, it doesn't really seem to have anything good or hopeful to say about God's people. It's mostly just a rant about how wicked all of us are. And you know what? You know, to be honest, you're actually right. That's basically what it is. But part of the point here in establishing that there is none who does good, not even one, is to help us understand where our salvation cannot come from. And that is namely from us. It can never come from us. It can never come from humankind. It can never come from the things of this earth. We are so lost and so corrupt and so incapable of seeking and understanding God that if we are ever going to be counted among the generations of the righteous, then we are going to need him to intervene for us and bring us his salvation from somewhere else, which is exactly what the psalmist ends this psalm by praying Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. I love the theme of Zion in the Old Testament. It's incredible. It's really fascinating. It's basically a heavenly city is the idea that in some way at least corresponds with the earthly capital city of Jerusalem. Zion is a transcendent, otherworldly place, quote-unquote, that we can only go to in an invisible spiritual way. It is a much better, holier, and heavenly version of Jerusalem. 
Now, here's why that's significant, because this is the king of Israel writing Psalm 14, we have to remember. And if there was anyone on earth that the people of Israel would have looked to for salvation, it would have been him. If there was any city that held the promise of prosperity and peace for God's people, it would have been the earthly city of Jerusalem. And yet notice, David does not encourage Israel to look for salvation in him or in the city of Jerusalem or here on earth at all. He's basically praying at the end of this psalm, oh, that salvation would come from somewhere else. Not from here on the earth, which God looks down on in judgment, but from heaven. That salvation would come from Zion, that it would come from above. Oh, that salvation would come from you, O Lord. From him, church. From the same God that all of us fools have rejected in our hearts. Only he can rescue us from this kind of sin and rebellion. And here is the greatest news you will hear today. And the most important thing I would say to keep in mind as you read Psalm 14 as a believer in Christ. Church, our salvation has come from Zion. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life for us. He died a sacrificial death in our place. He rose again in victory over all of our sin and all of our rebellion. He ascended back to Zion where he now rules and reigns over all creation. And now we await the day when he returns from Zion yet again to restore our fortunes once and for all so that we can rejoice, so that we can be glad with him forever.